Hello and welcome to another episode of Beginning Teacher Wednesday Podcast. I am your host, Jen Hawkins, and I am so excited to be back. It has been a longer spring break than I intended, but I have spent the past month getting to tape episodes with just amazing educators, people I never thought would end up on the show, and I am so excited to share them with you over the next couple of months. For my admin, beginning teacher program coordinators, mentors, this episode is for you guys. I think that there's a lot to take out of it for beginning teachers, but this episode is really geared towards you. We're going to dive into what mentorship looks like, what a healthy mentorship looks like, um, how to create environments and spaces that help grow beginning teachers um, and allow them to be become their own uniquely capable teachers. So I am really excited to sit down with today's guest. Dr. Matthew X. Joseph is currently the Director of Curriculum Instruction and Assessment in Lakester Public Schools. He's a co-author of Modern Mentoring, Reimagining Teacher Mentorship. Matt also holds licenses in general education, school administration, and Massachusetts superintendent. His master's degree is in special education, and he earned his EDD in educational leadership from Boston College. Uh, He has so much to share about mentoring and the impact that it can have on beginning teachers. I'm going to give you a warning for this episode. Um, I don't think I've actually introduced him on the show, but I have a uh, corgi named Otis who is going to make a couple audio appearances as he gets very excited that my husband is coming home from work throughout this episode. So I apologize in advance, but that's just what happens when life happens. I think there's so much to learn from this episode, so we're just going to go ahead and get started. Uh, Find somewhere comfortable to sit get a notebook because you're going to want to take notes and find your beverage of choice because we're about to sit down for the next 30 minutes with Dr. Joseph. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I absolutely adore our sponsor, Papa Murphy's of Raleigh. They do so much for our community, uh, for educators, and they have great food. It's an easy way to make sure that you've got a hot dinner on the table uh, if you don't want to do all the prep work. So right now in April, customers can save 50% on a regular priced menu item to any order of $20 or more when you order online at papamurphys.com and use the code APRIL50. That's APRIL, A-P-R-I-L, 50, five, zero, at checkout and get 50% off on $20 or more when you order from papamurphys.com. Just put in your dinner order uh, while you're still in the building, drive away, and it'll be sitting there waiting for you. Do you want to go ahead and just kind of tell us who you were as a beginning teacher? What was the hardest lesson you learned and what was your biggest win in the classroom? Um, So I graduated Springfield College in 1993 and I was an elementary school teacher. So I got my license in elementary school education and I went back to Berkshire County where I went to high school in Pittsfield High School. And when I first became a teacher in the public school, I was a third grade teacher and I taught third and fifth grade through my time time there. And I loved it, it was great, but I kind of went into it with a college mentality. Not that I was doing things off the wall, but I felt like I was able to talk my way through classes. I was able to have the information. Mm-hmm. I was intelligent enough to know 
certain things and could guide conversations. And I was working with eight-year-olds, right? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, fairly educated uh, uh, person going in teaching. So I'd follow the curriculum. And one of the pitfalls you talked about, one of the lessons learned early on is that, yes, they may be eight. However, that doesn't mean they don't have a wide variety of questions. That oh, they yeah, ask for me. sure. <laughs> right? So <laughs> one of the things I learned early on is you can't wing it. So I learned, and I remember this, it was a lesson I taught in, about Native American history, social studies. And we were talking about, we read a story. And of course, I didn't read it the day before. I'm an adult. I don't need to pre-read stories, right? <laughs> and so we're reading it. And a, a part of the story talks about that Native Americans ran horses over the edge, you know, as part of, part of the process. And I was like, no way. I said, no, this isn't true. Like, I was like, no, this can't happen. Yeah. Because that just didn't seem right. So the kids started asking me questions. I'm like, oh, crap. I, I don't know the answers because I didn't really prep. I wasn't ready for this lesson. And I just found it easier to just answer it the way I thought it should be. Well, next day, I get a call from the principal. Like, hey, did you tell the kids these three things? And I got a call from the parent. And I was like, yeah, I learned my lesson. I'm just going to be like, yeah, I did. I'm my bad. Yeah. And so I learned early on that no matter what grade level you teach pre-K to 12, and no matter how um, you feel, you know, information, you can't wing it. And I learned from that just to say, I'm not sure. Let me find out. <laughs> that was, that was definitely one that I learned um, early on. And then another lesson I earned, learned early in that year was when I was figuring out who I was as, as a teacher, things I liked, liked to do. I loved music at the time. I loved game shows. I liked certain things and to have fun. I'm loud. And my partnering teacher, my neighboring teacher was the exact opposite. And I was always trying to be quiet. And I was always trying to be what I would think is a teacher. Mm -hmm. And once I started to learn myself and, and, and design game shows for reviews instead of a boring test review and design kind of debates and do things that I found enjoyable, I started to dive into the content more because I was starting to do more things that I liked. Students started to see my personality. And I think for a new educator, being who you are early on is gonna make it easier to be one, believable to students because mm -hmm. if you're trying to be somebody else, that's incredibly hard. And I think that goes through, you know, I've had an opportunity to be teacher or principal, district leader. It's the same throughout. Yep. That when you are honest with yourself and it takes some time to get comfortable in your skin. And, and you know what I'll say to new teachers, if you like music, play music. If you're an artist, be creative. If you like to write, do journaling project, whatever it is, be who you are and work your way through because then you're comfortable when it does get have some difficult times. Yeah, I think that's uh, so important too because being someone you're not is exhausting. And those first years of teaching are exhausting as is. So now trying to be your unauthentic self just adds another layer. And I think sometimes in education, we idolized this uh, cookie cutter kind of type of teacher of, of what a teacher should be and how a teacher should look. Absolutely. It and I think taking that, I'll, I'll, if for the new educators that are listening or new to the profession, I'm going to give you a principal answer to this. It would drive me crazy, just to be honest with you. 
where I'd walk down the hall and see a bulletin board up with every student having the exact same thing up because you mm -hmm. think it looks nice. You know, I always give the example of in, in the wintertime, I know I'm gonna get snowmen up there. All the circles are gonna be perfectly cut because the teacher's gonna use a die cut or something. They're all gonna have one of three color hats on the snowman. Like, <laughs> and I would say like, I'd, why not the snowman be red? Why not, like, let's be creative. And I get what you're saying is that the new educators are so worried about getting it right instead of having fun with it. And, and I remember, again, these are things that I remember and really got me into this lane of, of education and supporting new educators. I had an, a teacher, neighboring teacher, I could hear her because I would watch and listen, say to the student, dogs can't be blue. Because the little girl, again, I was an elementary school teacher. The, the girl just colored the dog blue. It's life goes on. It's okay. They're not going to go through the rest of the life thinking dogs are blue. And I remember like, who, who cares? Like, it's not a test about can we get the match the exact color? And I think for our new educators is to obviously, going back to the first thing I said, don't wing it, don't make things up. But at the same point, be your authentic self and let students have that because it's the only way you're going to create a psychological safe environment for them to feel comfortable, for them to want to come to school. I think that's important. Yeah. One of my first years of teaching, I was teaching sixth grade social studies, which in the state of North Carolina is world history. And everyone down the hallway was <clears throat> doing things the way it had been traditionally taught, right? In their 20 years of teaching experience, this is this is how the kids understand mummies. And uh, I went to my principal who, to this day, I will forever be grateful for just the support that they gave me to let me be me in my classroom. And I was like, listen, I have an idea. It's crazy, but I think like I can tie it to every standard. I think this is going to work. And they were like, it's you're absolutely correct. It is bananas crazy. This is, <laughs> this is a hot mess, but like, if this is what you think is going to get your kids engaged, like by all means have fun. I bought all these and I had the parents help. Um, we got a whole bunch of uh, raw rotisserie chickens and we mummified chickens and we actually did it right. So the kids knew the steps of the mummification process and they embalmed nice. them and just this week I was going to target and uh, someone, you know, laid on the horn and it was <laughs> one of my kids driving. Um, and they were like, Ms. Hawkins, you know, we still, we still think about that lesson where you thought we could mummify chickens. And guys, it went awful. Like it went terrible. <laughs> the, whole, the stench, we never opened the chickens like it, <laughs> but the one specific day where everything went right and that lesson worked perfectly like that, not only, not only was it important for my kids, right? It was important for my kids. It, it was a meaningful lesson. It, it challenged them. It made them think in a critical way, but what that did for me as a beginning teacher to have someone believe that I could pull that off, support me in pulling that off and let me do a lesson that was authentic to me and not one that I was supposed to teach. I'm using my air quotes there. Yeah, and, and that those they're correctly placed. Was just just freeing, right? And And allowed me the next lesson to be like, all right, how can I take this another step further, right? No, that, that's so important. And, and, you know, the stories we're sharing are so important because one of the things we often get trapped in, and I see this, you know, like 
I'll put my principal hat on for a minute was our new educators get trapped in playing school instead mm -hmm. of learning. Yes. And you, what you just described, you know, even if it went incredibly wrong, it didn't work out. Kids were learning something. They learned that you took a risk. They learned that you believed in them. Mm -hmm. They learned that it's okay to try something in prototype. They might've even learned something about mummification or you might've got their curiosity, like, oh my God, they went home and talked about that. No matter what, they left school, went home and said, Miss Hawkins did this. What, do you, what is going on? And the parents might've said, or family who they live with said, what do you, what's mummification? The kids could like now teach the, the family. So did yeah. you cover the exact thing and assess the exact thing that's in the scope and sequence? Maybe, maybe not, but the kids learned something. And I think for our new educators out there focusing on the learning more than just the exact step one, step two, get you to that place to be authentic. And in your assessment, you were trained as a teacher, you got your certification, you were hired. So somebody believed in you. Now believe in you to do it how you think is right. Yeah. And, and doing that is, is freeing. And a similar thing happened, not with the mummification, but kind of how <laughs> I got in my, my leadership pathway is we had old computers just sitting around. Again, I'm graduated 93. So you know, kind of where I started and there were old computers that school was going to get rid of. And I said, let me bring them in so our students could practice presentations. And we use the old Apple computers. And from that, I had opportunity to work with Apple and do some great things that I never would have had a chance to do. Yeah. And we actually launched a one-to-one -one initiative 16 years ago. And it was just from trying things out. And I think that's what we have to do for our new educators. One thing I want to share with you is I use this word a lot. It's called, it's prototyping. Try something and build off it. Don't get rid of it. If it doesn't work, build on it. And, and, and it's not always one and done with things. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so Matt, you do a lot of work around mentoring, supporting mentor relationships. What have you found is the most important quality for a mentor to have? So I'm going to share mine, but it's the first thing people are going to say when they hear it is like, yeah, we get it. Like it's <laughs> almost like, like Captain Obvious is going to come up like, yeah, uh, uh, dude, we get it. But I'm going to say, listen. And the reason I say that, like, let me, let me go through the whole piece. And I do a lot of work with this. I wrote the book, Modern Mentor, because what happens with mentors is they are the probably, you know, 10 to 15 year teacher. They've done their subject for a long period of time. They have all the, they're keeper of the information. Mm -hmm. And if you, and I'm not saying this is, happens everywhere, but if you don't have a proper training program for those mentors, their belief is this new educator will learn by me telling them everything. I'm going to tell you how to do this, yep. do it. And what happens is you create mini me's, right? So I say you have to listen because listen to what the person is asking listen how the person teaches in their class. What is their cadence? How do they talk to kids? How do they talk to adults? How do they talk to you? Because your role as a mentor is not to just turn new teachers into the mini you. Yep. I wouldn't want anybody to teach like me because unless you came from a single family home in Berkshire County and went to Springfield College and went through different things I've been through, you aren't gonna do it like me. Mm -hmm. You're gonna do it like you. And you learn that through listening, hearing the person speak, hearing their pitch when something gets nervous and they're like, whoa, and you're like, okay, that's that I pushed it a little too far. 
and hear what they want to accomplish. Because I've seen too many times where educators was like, I want to create this differentiated lesson through using, you know, math manipulatives. And the mentor says, great, I have a lesson for you. And just yeah. gives it to them. Like, you're not listening. They're trying to create their own lesson. And, and it's not a throwaway comment to say to listen, because there's more than that. It's not just hearing that they're talking. It's learning who they are. Because one of the things that I, you know, I found, I did my doctoral study on school culture and enhancing teacher job satisfaction is the number one thing is people want to feel valued in their work. Mm. They're going to do the copying. They're going to do the parent nights. They're going to do these things that are part of the job. But if they don't feel valued, they're not going to like it. Right? Yeah. And for a new educator, if you don't show that you value them by listening to them, then it's just a process. Then it's just a program. Check the boxes and move on. And that is not going to work out for anybody. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times um, when asked about it, you know, teaching is very much to me an art form. Um, it, it's an art form with a lot of data, right? And and I think that's <laughs> I think that's why as educators we we sometimes take things very personally is because it's our art. Um, in the same breath, a lot of times I think of mentoring very similar to like a a painting or drawing class, right? That instructor might go up to the front of the room and say, okay, we're going to draw a bowl of fruit and they'll draw a bowl of fruit. Right. But the thing is artists that are in that room learning, they all will probably draw the bowl of fruit. It's going to be in a much different style, right? Right. That's art. Um, And we don't want a million copies of the same bowl of fruit you still have to produce a bowl of fruit, right? You still have to do that drawing because it's a job. There's requirements. There are um, structures and expectations in place. Absolutely. So you still have to, but you can put your own style on it. Um, And I have seen great teachers, two phenomenal teachers that work across the hall that look nothing alike, but it's when we start you know, it's either when someone wants us to become someone else, whether that's a mentor, whether that's a admin, whether that's a coach, or when we feel like we have to become someone else, um, is when we start to lose that authentic self that is needed to develop relationships with students and do high quality teaching. Absolutely. And and another one I'll share is, is to be vulnerable. If you're going to be a successful mentor, yes. you have to be vulnerable enough to know you're not going to have all the answers. It goes back to don't wing it. I mean, same thing I learned in my first year of teaching is what I learned as a mentor, what I learned as a principal, that you have to be vulnerable to say, I'm not sure. I don't know that. Can you help me with whatever it may be that the more you're open, again, it goes back to valuing the, the, per, the beginning teacher, yeah. is that you're showing them trust value through saying, uh, let me find that out. Let's work on this together. Whatever it is, you have to be vulnerable because every step of the way from when I was a new educator to a new principal, to a new district leader, anytime that I had some missteps, it was that I was trying to be the boss. I was going to be right. I was going to do it right. I have the answers. And it it never worked out. I I don't know why I kept going to the well, but that was something that I learned. And, and for new mentors, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't. Well, it's not the job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that we also have, I don't want to say gotten wrong, right? But, but something that I hear often is 
you know, I'll, I'll see a really great teacher and I'll be like, why aren't you mentoring someone? Like, like, why don't we have you as a mentor yet? And it's like, well, I, I don't know all the answers. Well, they're probably going to have a problem. I'm not going to know how to solve right. or, you know, I'm not able to do this. And we almost gatekeep these phenomenal educators out of mentor programs too, because of the fear of the unknown, the fear of not being able to support or know or have all of the answers, but that's what we want. And that's what we need. We need those people who are willing to say, I don't know it. Let's go find it. Yeah, absolutely. That, that personality. And a lot of times it's held back because there's a more senior or veteran person who's done it forever. Like, am I going to step on this person's toes and and cause some difficult conversations? I don't want to do that. And I think that's, that uh, hamstrings a lot of schools and districts in their mentoring program. Yes, it is. It is okay to step on toes lessons that I learned as a beginning teacher. It maybe will be the title of my men, my memoir. (laughs) There you go. Stepping on toes. I like it. So with that in mind, so we kind of talk about an ideal traits in a mentor thinking of, we have a lot of listeners who are, heads of mentor programs, admin, coaches, in your mind, in your experience, what does an ideal mentor program look like? Well, I think it starts before you need a mentor. So, Mm. you know, not to plug the book, but in, in chapter two of the book, I talk about creating a mentor pool, similar to like, I'm a big baseball fan and other people watch baseball that most teams have a triple A affiliate it means they have players ready. If somebody in the major leagues gets injured or get, they need somebody. Right. We, we are sometimes reactive in districts when we need mentors. Mm. Oh, we have a new teacher. Who's going to be the mentor. Who, let's scurry around. Oh, there's someone next door. So just have a successful mentor program. It starts with creating a pool of people who are great mentors. The person you hypothetically just talked about who was great teacher, great, get them in the pool of mentors, talk to them, coach them up. This is great. And you do that through creating a culture, a mindset of mentoring, that everybody can be a mentor. Start that early on. And that starts with the principal and even a superintendent say, our district is going to focus on mentoring. And this is not just one year and we're done. It's how we're going to really facilitate it. So it starts with creating a pool of mentors. And then the second thing is you have to train and give professional development to the mentors because it's amazing to me. And I'm going to go off tangent for a minute and come back, but that Education is one of the only professions where when you get a promotion, you essentially do a whole different job. Yes, I have said this for years. (laughs) Right? So I was a good, maybe great, but more towards a good teacher. So they take good to great teachers and they put them in a job that is not teaching kids, right? You put them in a principal job that manages budgets that now has to do evaluation. It's a whole different job. So training mentors is very similar that you take these fabulous teachers who you feel are going to be fabulous mentors and then just say go mentor mm-hmm. like you're not giving them communication strategies you're not giving them classroom observation strategies you're not giving them conflict resolution you're not going to talk about goal setting not just for themselves because maybe they've mastered it but teaching somebody else is very hard yeah so the second phase of that is getting a pool of mentors anybody can do it and then training them because sometimes a good teacher could be a great mentor and I know, and I believe that it's a belief of mine because I think I was a good teacher. I wasn't great. I was good, but I thought I was a great principal. And I'm not saying that to bragging. I'm saying that it's different roles. Right. I preferred working with uh, adults and training and leadership. 
And I was good at working with students. And I think the same as a mentor. You can be a good teacher and a great mentor. Sadly, you can be a great teacher and a poor mentor. Yep. So I think the second piece is getting them training. And the third is release time. What I mean by that is how can you mentor someone you never see during the time that they're working? Yeah. Allow mentors to visit classrooms. This goes back to listening. Allow the mentees to visit class, visit their mentor. And I think having that time just, again, goes back to valuing them. But how are you going to give feedback to somebody you've never seen do the job? It's not, right? Like, how can you do that? So I think, I mean, I could go on and on, but those are the big three things. Create a pool of educators who can do it. So you can, when you meet somebody, match them up because it can't be the person, always be the person next door. It just can't, that it never works. You can't mentor by convenience. Just because your door opens to the classroom doesn't mean you're a great mentor then train the mentors and then give them time to be a mentor. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking, and this is my own personal soapbox tangent, um, but one of the things that irks me to the degree in education is how we do teacher of the year because we do it and no, no one ever sees each other teach. They don't see it. And then we all say, you know what, guys, I'll vote and pick the best one. And I know that none of them have been in anyone's classroom. And (laughs) it is beyond fascinating to me. And I think it just goes on with that mentor thing of like, okay, mentor and coach this person. But um, you know what? It's only required by the state that you go in there once during the first (laughs) quarter. And that's that's it. So right, it's a belief system, right? It's how, do you have to believe in this? You create a mindset. Oh, the teacher, you don't even get what started because let's say you have a, you get voted and then you have an awesome year, two years later, there's no, re, no way you're getting it. You can't have it two times in three years. Yeah, no. It's going to go to somebody else. Like it's, it's well, a cycle. And the thing that's, the thing that's interesting to me is there's some things when technology met education, right? And they, they, form together. There were some things we really nailed. Like we really got it. At, and I'm saying we as a profession, apparently I'm going to take ownership for the whole profession this yes, evening. I, you have it. You have the mic. But we, we took it, we ran with it and it's like, yay, good job. Here's where I am stuck that I just think has education as a whole dropped the ball. Video. I don't, un- I understand where it's one of those things where it's like, I don't have time to see you in your classroom. Our schedules don't line up as an administrator who makes, I think this year I'm up to my 14th variation of a schedule. I get it. There are, <laughs> there are so many um, constraints and times and requirements that can fit. You might not be able to get there, but then you have programs where like you very easily could videotape yourself for a lesson they do it for national boards and sit down and talk through some things or say like hey you know I want to try this in math I'm going to try it this Wednesday I'm going to videotape 15 minutes of it can we sit down and process it together and I just think we've really dropped the ball on that somehow of like using video to our benefit especially when it comes to mentoring and coaching absolutely I couldn't agree more we could do a whole show on that and I think that's where we did drop the ball and I think it's because there's so much put into evaluation, mm. ratings, how good are we proficient now, but that once you memorialize something, people are worried they're going, it's going to come back to haunt them because we don't focus enough on the positive. Like let's make a, an exemplar 
playlist uh, that here's how you do a lesson launch and, and, and teacher A shows five minutes. Okay, she's early elementary. Let's do one in middle. And we do the same thing with engaging questioning and all these other things. It would be phenomenal to, to do that. I mean, that would be, that'd be wonderful. Well, maybe that's our million dollar project. We there you go. You that. got your book title and your million dollar project. <laughs> we should just keep talking. Apparently <laughs> I'll solve go. the world's problems by the end of this session. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay. So how do mentors help coach their BT without turning them into that carbon copy that we were talking about? Right. So mm. seeing something that we say about kids all the time, right? Seeing the kid as the individual and not as a number. How do mentors do that with their BT? So and by BT, beginning teacher, I'm guessing that you're yes. talking. And so I think I'm going to repeat the first thing is listen, but then have an honest conversation and, and list out 10 things. And every school is different. And but list out like the top 10 things in, in your school and your level, because you know, high schools can be different than elementary, whatever it is. I give some examples in, in the book of how to do this, but go through 10 things that you're going to need to know and look at the performance gap. What I mean by that, let's say parent conferences, right? So a, a beginning teacher has never done that. There's going to be a large performance gap. Let's not say needs improvement. Let's not say you don't know this. Let's focus on the performance gap. If it's curriculum design and you're mentoring a teacher who her or his, you know, minor was in curriculum development, their performance gap might not be that big or that large. If it's talking about different strategies, focus on the needs of the beginning teacher. Go through 10 things, go through a process and fo focus on the gap of where they currently are and where you want them to be. And then, and then backwards map, like, okay, the largest performance gap right now is writing professional emails to your family members. Let's right. focus on that. Let's, let's look at the root cause of the bigger things. Your, the biggest focus is calling on boys because you seem to call on girls a lot. Whatever it is, it's not a you have this skill, you don't have this skill. You come in from college and don't know this or that. Focus on where they can grow. Because when you focus on where they can grow, you're always focusing on positive steps forward. Yeah. And... The, the second thing, as I say a lot, is, you know, be the navigator, not the pilot. Like, navigate the new educator. Help them through it, but don't, don't do it for them. Don't drive them. You know, I have, again, I have a lot of little, little phrases. You know, I always say, I'm going to let you fall, but I'm not going to let you fail. Mm -hmm. Like, you learn from your mistakes. You learn from trying. You know, I talk about prototyping. Like, be there and establish, this is how we're going to try things. And creating those goals for educators are great, but what's even more important is action steps. Mm. So find the largest performance gap or a few, create a goal, and then, and then create measurable kind of actions throughout the way. So you're always focusing on the work and the progress. Yeah. And it's not a, you did this or didn't do this. You can't do that. Or you've never assessed this or that. Like really find out where they can have achievement because when you start building up the confidence of the beginning teacher, then you're going to get them to take more risks. Mm -hmm. I think something that's really important too, that I would like to see more schools doing or more programs doing is I think we, it kind of goes back to that pool you were talking about. I think we almost arbitrarily pair beginning teachers. Um, oh, it's terrible. The convenience mentor. Yeah. 
And, and it's things like, okay, we've got a beginning teacher. She's coming into fourth grade. I got a fourth grade mentor. Here we go. Um, I got someone who entered, you know, it might be a career shift is entering a little bit older. I'm going to pair them with this older person. Okay. And there we go. Or um, my favorite is like, okay, we don't really feel confident in all of our mentors. Um, so our one good mentor is now up to their fourth BT, right? Right. And then you burn them out. Yeah. So I almost want, like, I feel like we should almost do like a, an entrance ticket of, of like, what do you know about yourself? You know, um, Shantae Garrett was on the show and she talked about owning your gifts, right. And how important that is. Beginning teachers have gifts and, Absolutely. and they know them. Um, but we, sometimes we have to ask them. And I think that it's totally appropriate to say like, what are some things that you feel really confident in? What are some things you are maybe worried about or nervous about, or not sure how to implement and then take a look as an administrator, as a coach, as a whoever, and say, okay, Jen really is struggling with interventions. That's not something she feels confident leaving her teaching program, but she feels really good with class culture and relationships. Interesting. Absolutely. So we're going to find someone who maybe has a blend of how they've used their relationships to help with interventions or find someone who's really strong in interventions and put that person together. I think just being a little more intentional with how we're doing it. And I think that you can't have that intentionality if you don't have a big pool. Right. And I think to take that, and that's very similar, then you look at those performance gap and take it one step further is that once you have a mentor, a beginning teacher, that doesn't mean someone else can't help them or support them. Yes. In the same scenario, you know, if somebody was, you know, my mentee or beginning teacher, we would do a lot of presentations. We would do a lot of oral kind of discussions, brainstorming, but if they really needed to write a letter or do something, I would have to call somebody, you know, I'm not a, that's not my strength as a mentor. And I would have someone else because going back to the very first thing you said is I'm not going to wing it. So if, if districts and teacher or schools had like a team of mentors that we kind of support the new educators with our own strengths as well, then if the goal is really to support and nurture new educators, then we have to really think differently about what we're doing. If it's just to finish the program to get their professional license and move, move on, then that's, that, that's different. And one of the things, and not to get too deep, if any principals are listening, it's a lot of money to train new teachers over and over and over again because you lose them in your second, third year because you didn't have a mentoring program. How many times you want to teach them how to use the reading program because you get 10 new teachers a year? Like get a group of teachers, train them, invest in them, and because research has shown year five to 10 is their prime years for student growth. So let's make it work. Yeah. And I think the team approach is so important and something that was, uh, I'll use the word, I'll throw it out there, detrimental to me as a beginning teacher. <laughs> I had a mentor who I went and asked another mentor for help. And they told me that morning, the following morning, they needed to meet with me and they called me in a room and shut the door and said, don't you ever talk to another mentor. That is not how this works. You don't ask yeah. anyone else for help. Um, and I think the fear in that moment, as if I, if I can step back now as someone who's in a mentoring leadership role, 
I think that fear that that person held was my BT is doubting my ability to do something and when to ask for help. When the reality was my mentor didn't teach math. I, right. She didn't teach math at all. And I taught math and I needed help with a math thing. It made a whole heck of a lot of sense for me to go to Absolutely. someone else. Um, and that's but, focusing on learning again. Correct. But I would say, I don't think I'm the only person that's ever happened to um, that. Not. There's almost this, uh, like ownership of BTs guys spread the wealth. If you're a beginning teacher, you can ask someone else. That's a healthy school culture. Um, and mentors, it's okay to say, you know what? I never taught writing. Uh, you know, you need help with this journal entry assignment. That's the big final project. One of the greatest things a mentor has to offer their BT is their previously established relationships within the school building, right? Their knowledge of who the supporting uh, staff is, what their strengths are, how they can support different co-teachers, different, you know, resources and people in the building, introducing and helping bridge that new connection so that your BT can utilize that person, um, and I think that if you don't know the answer, show your BT where the answer is, show Absolutely. them these other people and make those connections in the school. Yes. Uh, amen. What does the future of mentor programs look like? I think the pandemic has changed a lot, um, in education in general, right? It's given us some space. I think stepping away from buildings gave us space to kind of take a step back and say, does it have to be this way? Are we doing things the way we thought they would be? Um, so I think a lot of us are coming back into beginning teaching programs and starting to say, is this exactly the best way to do this? What do you foresee kind of the future, the next coming years of beginning teacher programs starting to look like? I think one of the things to think about, and we, we've kind of danced around it a little bit, is that the, the mentor actually doesn't even have to be in your building at this yeah. point. That if you're actually going off of what you said and, and things that I believe in, if the teacher has a need and a mentor has the skill, that's how you match them up. And if they happen to be a teacher in a different building, what we've learned is I mean, you and I are connecting today from Massachusetts to North Carolina. Right. If I, if I was your mentor, you were mine, we could connect three times a week. We could mm -hmm. talk. You could set up your classroom and I could watch what you're doing. I think it's opened up the possibilities of who can mentor someone within a district that doesn't have to be. And I've said this like five times because it drives me crazy. The convenient mentor who's in the same grade, who's the same sex and who's right next door. Yep. It doesn't have to be that way. It's the person that's going to support the new teacher and their needs the most. And it could be in a different grade, it could be in a different school. It could be in, in somewhere that they aren't even teaching in that district. If it's somebody you know as a principal, that's not as likely, but it's somebody doesn't have to be in the building. Yep. If the need matches the skill of the mentor, that's how we can do it. And we can set up class zoom in the room, whatever you want to call it. You can have virtual meetings. You can go over once we go back to in person, but they don't have to be in the same room, in the same building. Absolutely. Okay. So we like to end every episode with some rapid fire questions. All so right, here let's we go. go. What is your before school routine? Um, this has been going on for when I was at Boston College. Get up at 530, take a walk, listen to some music, 
and get ready for the day. That sets the mood for me that I don't just jump up, get ready and go into school, that it gives me time to reflect, listen to music, listen to podcasts, whatever it is. And I don't start the day thinking about work. Awesome. Uh, one word that students you work with would use to describe you? Um, I, would, I would like to say fun and I hope <laughs> they say fair. I mm. think that is something that I try to, to pride myself on. Your favorite school supply is? Uh, sticky notes. I oh. love sticky notes because they just, it, it helps me to frame. And I'm also somebody who hates long emails. I hate long reading a lot of things. And on a sticky note, I can just write one or two things and put them where I need them. And I easily can get rid of them when I accomplish the, whatever's on there. What is your favorite mantra or saying when things get tough? I would say for myself, and I would share this with us, is slow down. Sometimes when things get hard, we get all like, we can do this. We got to, we got to, we're going to do this. We're going to try this. And actually I like to slow down, chill out and let's figure this out. Like we don't need to do this right now. Like let's find our solution. But I would say to slow down. Absolutely. What's one thing you wish someone would have told you as a beginning teacher? I mean, we've, we've thread this through all the time, but you don't have to have all the answers. Don't, you don't. And, and, and I would say if there's a 1A, leave school at an appropriate time. Yes. Don't stay for hours and hours because you think you have to plan whatever it is. Have a life. Like you're not going to have all the answers anyways. Have a life. Because if you don't have a life outside of that classroom, that becomes your identity. And then when things are hard, you kind of question yourself. So leave, set a time that you leave school every day, no matter what what's happening and it's kind of freeing for you. Yeah. Matt, what are you working on and how can people connect with you? Sure, I'm actually, um, I've had an opportunity to write my third book. I'm talking about the power of connections. So I'm writing a book about how educators connect, what are different ways that we can stay connected through what we're doing here, podcasting, talking. Friday mornings, I run a leadership lounge where principals can drop in and we just talk or leaders. And um, so that book's gonna be coming out through Codebreaker and it's just looking at how educators are creating a global PLN. Awesome. How can people connect with oh, you? You're yeah, good. I would say to two different ways. The two, the, there's many ways to do it, but the two easiest ways, if you jump on my Twitter profile at Matthew X Joseph, you'll find a lot of links there. Or if you wanna see some work that I've done or, or free professional development videos, I post everything because it's just easier and, and it's supportive. It's mxjspeaker.com. Those are the two main places. If you jump on there, um, you'll be able to find other things that you're looking for. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much for coming on and connecting. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So many amazing things from that episode. I'm just really impressed with Matt's insight and lens on what great mentoring should look like and can look like. I think the big thing I'm going to take away from this episode is that when we're mentoring or supporting teachers, even any teacher, not just beginning teachers, but especially beginning teachers, the goal is not to get them to look and do things exactly like us. The goal is to support them and give them the space to become their unique self and become a phenomenal teacher in the process. I think it's so important we also reiterate this idea that the greatest gift a mentor teacher can give a beginning teacher is not necessarily all of the answers. 
uh, but help support them through the network that's already been created and established in the building that they're in. This episode is going to drop on April 28th, 2021, which means that next week we are already in the crazy month of May, but we will be doing a Twitter chat on May 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern time on Twitter at the hashtag BTW podcast chat. Um, I think that the work that Matthew is doing is amazing. So here's the deal. I am also going to give away a copy of his book to one listener um, who screenshots that they were listening to this episode and goes ahead and tweets it out and tags two people. So if you want a copy of his book, go ahead, screenshot this episode, tag two people, make sure you tag BTW Podcast Chat and I will give away a copy of his book. We will be back in a couple of weeks. I am so excited for our next couple of guests. I know that we took a break, but we are back in full swing. If you haven't already checked it out yet, we do have a website, beginningteacherpodcast.com. You can get merch, you can get links to all of our episodes, um, and you can get in touch with us. So if you are interested in any of that, that's beginningteacherpodcast.com. Guys, I hope that you have a great week. Hang in there. We're almost at the end. We can see the light. And remember to continue connecting, exploring, and growing together. See you next time.